0: My name is Mike, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to be with you this morning as we continue our series in Advent, uh, looking particularly at uh, this first chapter of John's Gospel. And I'm going to be looking particularly uh, from verses 5 to 12, the idea of light. Um, it's a very stark theme, isn't it? Very, very vivid light and darkness, almost cliched even. Uh, I experienced kind of this striking theme uh, very richly uh, pre-kids. I was uh, invited by a work colleague who was a previous caving adventurer uh, and kind of a guide. He said, Mike, come away with us and a few lads. We're going to go camping and caving. I was like, sure, sounds amazing. So there we are camping in a tent uh, in the middle of Wee Jasper, which is kind of a long way from here. um, And very stark, very kind of, um, yeah, just a very harsh landscape. And I find myself the next morning after camping, uh, not at the sort of front of this kind of, you know, big Janolan cave entrance kind of cave. That's what I was expecting. Instead, I found myself in the middle of a field, and in the middle of the field was a rocky outcrop. And as we walked around the rocky outcrop, there was this hole in the ground. He said, that's us. And so there we are with our caving lamps on our head, with our harnesses on, because it was going to get serious, and crawling down into this little manhole. Sorry if anyone's claustrophobic. Uh, sort of, you know, only five metres in, And the the light just disappears. But that had nothing on what I was about to experience. It was about 20 minutes after contortioning our way through the twists and turns of this cave system that I have no idea how he knew a map of this place. But anyway, there I was following him. It was 20 minutes in. He says, let's turn our lights off. I want to talk to you about some stuff. We want to preserve batteries. Okay, lights go off. Oh, my goodness. I have never experienced darkness like that. Like you can turn the lights off in your bedroom and if you've got sort of the, the, the blackout curtains, you know, that's dark. But I could put my hand in front of my face and could not see it at all. I could move my hand and my eyes could not even detect the slightest motion. It was just engulfing this blackness, oppressive even. But I wasn't particularly scared by that. I was scared by what I was about to be told. For we were about to latch onto kind of the, the rope and push ourselves out through a little hole in the side of our tunnel Uh, into who knows what. So I'm up first and and I get on the rope and push myself backwards through this little hole in the side of the tunnel until pop, I find myself dangling in the middle of a cavern, an underground cavern nearly as big as this building. And that was exciting because for as much as I was scared about the darkness, the way that my lamp shone across that cavern and lit up the majestic nature of this place that I had never even imagined. It was just, it was a movie experience. And so there I am dangling in the middle of this thing, shining kind of my light on all that I could possibly see until they're like, come on, Mike, get down, the next guy's got to go. It was an incredible experience, nothing short of magical. John's Gospel starts with a similarly striking theme of light and dark. He wants to introduce us to two critical ideas, that the world is in darkness and that Jesus, in his own words later in the Gospel, is the light of the world. Now, these themes of light and dark, particularly in spiritual terms of kind of God and demonic forces, good and evil, almost cliched, right? Like this kind of battle Harry Potter styles. Except in this cliche, we're taken much further. I couldn't help but note that Carl Jung, the founder of analytical psychology, he kind of picks up some of these themes when he says the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light in the darkness of mere being. Now, he kind of is owning the themes of kind of being living in the darkness. But for him, he's talking about kindling that inner light in the psyche and expelling the forces of darkness. John goes much, much further than that. In John's metaphor, there is no struggle between light and dark. Very quickly, we're we're introduced to the triumphant light that the darkness does not overcome. But secondly, there's this strange idea that the light was not recognised. It's as though humanity preferred to remain in darkness of the cave, avoiding the rescuer's light. Why this would be drives the Gospel of John, if not the entire Scriptures. And it's as we anticipate Christ's birth at Christmas in this Advent series that we have the privilege of exploring this light in the darkness. We're going to walk through the few verses that we have before us, so keep your Scriptures open. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, the beginning of our passage introduces us to this to this new kind of light. For whatever light there was before, we're about to experience this light shining in the darkness, and such a light that the darkness will not overcome it. Now, to help us, you know, John loves his ideas. He's a very conceptual writer, and if you've read the Gospel of John, sometimes you're just left scratching your head a little bit. Uh, But to sort of penetrate through some of these very abstract and conceptual ideas, we've got to recognize that John is drawing heavily on the ideas of Scripture that's gone before him, like the three-quarters of the Bible that you have in front of you. Uh, And that's why I chose the passage for our first reading from Isaiah. Isaiah also speaks of light and darkness. Um, He speaks about it in more concrete terms, about the gloom uh, from chapter 9, the gloom and sorrow that the new light will dawn into. In chapter 60, the one we had read, uh, his light shines on you and the nations will come to this light. There's this idea that in kind of this broken world around us, in the gloom and the sorrow that we very much are aware of, God had longed for his people to so enter a light, the light of God, so that they would be able to be a light to nations, that they'd be able to offer a counter narrative to the sorrow and grief and death and troubles of this world. Unfortunately, throughout the whole Old Testament, they only ever long for this because they never enter that light. They are never able to be the light of the world. I was reminded of one of the richest themes of the Old Testament, if not the scriptures, and that is of shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. A peace that should be enjoyed between God and humanity, within humanity between humanity and creation, a peace that kind of is so expansive that it will straighten every crooked path, that would bring rest to every fear and bring harvest for every famine, a webbing together of God, humans, creation, justice, fulfillment, and delight all bound up in this rich idea. When you contrast the sorrow and the gloom, you get the opposite view, this view of light, this view of peace. All through the scriptures, we are longing for the shalom, longing for the light to push away the darkness and the gloom. And yet it was always being longed for, never being experienced in full throughout the Old Testament. And now John introduces us to the light that will shine in the darkness. Here is hope. Here is shalom. Shalom. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to witness to testify concerning that light. Now, this is not John the writer. John the writer refers to himself as the beloved disciple throughout this gospel. He's referring, of course, to John the Baptist, who came to prepare his people for this light that was going to shine in the darkness. It's a strange thing, isn't it, to kind of think about having to prepare people for the light. You know, we turn a light switch up the back of the desk and all these kind of spotlights come on. I don't need to tell you, you can see for yourself that it comes on except that we're going to see that people didn't recognize the light. And so John's task was to prepare people that they might see this light shining in the darkness. His job was to prepare the way that they'd be able to understand it, that they'd be able to appreciate this this true light, verse 9, this true light that gives light to everyone and was about to come into the world. Except they had grandiose versions of shalom that meant they were looking for something that wasn't actually coming, because what was about to come was something radically different. The next two verses help us see this kind of twist. Verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. See, this true light is not a concept, not a philosophy, but a person. And and we are starting to kind of get a picture of this kind of person. For this person, you read it there? Though the world was made through him, here is light that creates. It takes us back to kind of last week's passage, particularly looking at, you know, Genesis chapter one. The word created. Here is the true light that creates. He is the source of life and light itself. He's like kind of the light bulb where all the light comes from. And here is a picture of kind of light and life coming from the Lord Jesus. But secondly, there's this idea of illumination. So when I'm walking through my house at night and the lights are off and I'm trying not to wake the children, I really need light because there's lots of little Lego pieces all scattered through my house that are really, really painful. When you turn the lights on, you get to see what's actually happening around you. You get to see the reality of what's around you. So Jesus is not just the source of life, but the one who illuminates all things. He gives light to everyone. Uh, John Calvin, one of the um, great reformers, uh, wrote in his Institutes of Religion about the gospel being like a pair of glasses that you put on. And through it, you re-see everything. For if, if this person, if this true light really is the source of life and really does illuminate all things, then all of a sudden we're not looking at cosmic space dust anymore. We're not looking at a cosmic accident. We're looking at a world that has meaning and wisdom. And we get to see that if we have eyes to see, if we have these gospel glasses, as it were. So Jesus is the source of light and life. He is the one who illuminates all things for how they really are. And he's also the rescuer because he's about to enter into the world that he created. And here we have this kind of picture of, you know, back in the cave, as it were, in the the gloom and darkness of the cave, metaphorically speaking. Here is Jesus shining his light as the rescuer the one coming into that place for us in the darkness. It's just that we chose to stay in darkness. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This is no longer conceptual. This is now incredibly personal. It could be rendered, he came to that which was his own home, but he was not received. How could this be? How could this rescuer shining light into the darkness not be received but but be rejected? Now his own could be Israel. John the Baptist, after all, was preparing uh, God's people that they might see the light that was going to come into the world. It could also be extended to all of us since God made us. Jesus made us, the maker of all things. Nonetheless, it's the human condition that leaves us in the darkness. But the real question is, why? Why would we choose darkness over the light? Why would we choose to reject and not receive this light of the world that's shining into the darkness? If we're far from shalom and in gloom and darkness, and Jesus is the light of the world, how could we have not received him? I want to come from this, I come at this from two different angles. One slightly philosophical. Philosophical, so if you're not into that, tune out for a bit. I'll tell you when to come back in. And secondly, just really straight up in in John's Gospel kind of way. Uh, Philosophically, I I can't help but think of when I'm thinking of dark and light, of kind of the dark ages and enlightenment. Uh, Charles Taylor, who is the author of A Secular Age and a great philosopher and theologian, uh, kind of traced the movement between the dark ages uh, through to enlightenment to what we now call the secular age. And it's just fascinating to see that these great epochs of history are defined by light, as it were, dark and enlightenment. He notices that we've moved very much from a transcendent frame where we're open to the divine and spiritual, to through enlightenment, to this kind of imminent frame where we're just all about our own little bubble. And instead of being kind of open to the light of the world, as it were, we are now kind of very much thinking of ourselves that we are the light of the world that we carry the light within us and we just got to let it shine. No longer is the world enchanted, but now it is disenchanted. And we have this picture of kind of a myriad of little people moving around with their little iPhone screens, as it were, lighting up their own little world, bumping into each other, no longer aware of the transcendent frame, the spiritual, that actually kind of holds the world together. And I find it fascinating. As I talk to people who kind of are very... Very spiritual perhaps in this area and open to all kinds of spiritual things and how they look at kind of Jesus this light of the world and see him as see such a kind of view as him being the light of the world as extraordinarily arrogant. I also find it incredibly arrogant that people would dare hold up their little iPhone torch to the world and think they've got the vantage point to be able to see the whole world. I guess we have to trust that if Jesus is the light of the world that he really does light up the whole world and gives us the vantage point to be able to re-see the transcendent frame, to be able to re-see the enchanted world that's been created, that we might find all that God has lit up for us. Instead, we're too easily satisfied with being lit up ourselves and seeing only what our little torches light up before our feet. That's kind of one way of looking at why people would reject the light of the world. And I guess the answer is because we feel like we are the light of the world. But John offers a far more stark reason as to why Jesus wasn't received. Later in the Gospel, he writes, "...those who do evil will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed." We hide in the dark crevices of the cave while the light of the world shines so that we will not be exposed for what we've done. As I was doing marriage prep with a couple recently, I was reminded of kind of the rich themes that kind of this, how this is kind of seen in Genesis 1 to 3. Adam and Eve are, are with God in the garden and they are enjoying shalom. They are completely exposed, completely vulnerable, and enjoying being delighted in by the God of all creation and the God who loves them. But it's after the fall, after they say to God, actually, we've got a cupboard. We don't need you anymore. We'll do it our way. And after they eat from the tree of knowledge, that they're hiding in the garden. And when God inquires as to what's going on, they are ashamed and they blame each other. And that sets up the pattern for humanity from that point onwards. We will be marked now by shame and blame. And because those are the things that we trade in now, we need to keep things in the dark, right? Sometimes even from ourselves. The idea of having a light expose the things that we've done and the crevices of our heart is scary. It's for this reason that I invited a neighbor to church a number of years back and he said, I would never come to church. I have done too many things to walk into that place. If you are prepared for this light to shine into every crevice, every dark place, and expose everything you've done, this light better be good, because too easily will it be used against us. For this reason, people choose to stay in the darkness of the cave while the light of the world shines brightly. It's not just that they didn't see Jesus as kind of a random celebrity in a busy street that they just happened to miss. It's that they didn't receive him. They didn't want him. Our hearts have turned inward. In our deluded obsession with how lit we are and our actual fear of being truly exposed, we've rejected the rescuer and we remain in darkness. And at this point, we're a long way from the triumphant light because we've chosen darkness, Jesus is rejected. And you've got to wonder how would God respond to this? Because if he truly entered into the world that he created and was rejected, surely he would not just be confused but, but angry. How could his creation do such a thing to the creator? But whenever we come across this kind of gospel predicament, look for the but or the yet. To find that gospel soothingness, verse twelve. Yet to all who did receive him, to those believed, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, this is God's truly personal response, and while he is angry and righteously slow, so he makes himself available. He personally presents himself such that we might be able to enter into the family of God, as it were, if we believe. He's not saying the light's going to shine, get your stuff in order because it's going to be all exposed and then you can jump on board if you're good to go. He actually transcends the category of light and darkness for a moment here to say, no, if you believe. To those who believed in his name, who trusted that Jesus was who he says he was, who is the true and living and good God, the maker of you and of all things, the sustainer of all things, the illuminator of all things. If you believe in his name, then you have the right, the power, the authority to be called a son or a daughter of the living God. This is the category of grace. He's actually saying the light's going to expose a bunch of stuff that makes you unworthy for this, and yet if you believe, it's yours. I trust you're enjoying some Christmas movies as I am. I hope they're as rubbish as the ones I've been watching. Last night I watched one called Christmas Rush, Holiday Rush, Rubbish, Kel did not let me look it up on IMDb, she was too fearful of uh, what what it would say, and yes, it was rubbish, I think it was a 4.3. But we kind of enjoy the kind of frivolity of watching just rubbish Netflix Christmas movies, and we kind of delight in the way it all sort of comes together at the end. You know, just this cliche scene at the end of every Christmas movie, I feel, is this kind of naff moment where the family all comes back together, and they're all wearing their Christmas knits, and there's a big feast on the table, and they're all laughing and delighting together, you know what I'm talking about, right? But behind that kind of naffness is something very, very profound. Because we all long to be in that family. Now, for a whole bunch of reasons, Christmas for many of us is very difficult. Because we don't experience that. But Jesus is not offering kind of a Christmas feast with you know, American friends. He's offering you to be part of the family of God where you can delight in him and that he, the God of the universe, would delight in you. That is what is on offer. This is the original Christmas story. And it will only be at the end of the gospel that we see at what cost this would be because Jesus would enter into darkness. He would take on the wrath of God as though the light would be quenched. He would enter the grave, the darkness of the grave, and even suffer hell for three days until that light would dawn. On the third day, be raised again in victory, for this light would actually push back the darkness. And this light is now available to us to transform us, to give us the authority to be called a child of God. C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. What's on offer here is the light of the world. He will rename you. He will reshape you. And he will make you see everything anew. Will you open yourself up to this light? Don't stay in darkness. For those that are living in the light already, believing in his name, we know that we don't always experience the shalom, the kind of the goodness of this light, as it were. Sometimes we've got to make really tough decisions. We've got to work through really hard stuff. I was chatting with someone recently as we were trying to make sense of some really difficult stuff. And I said, I don't don't know the answers to this. As a pastor, I don't have power of you to kind of make anything happen anyway. But what I do have is I can walk alongside you and take you to the one who makes sense of everything for us, who will shine his good light into every dark crevice, everything that you might even be ashamed of, that you might be flooded with his goodness and his grace, and that we might be able to rebuild what has been broken in the goodness of Jesus. Sometimes that's going to require repentance. Sometimes that's really hard to let that light shine into what we've been ashamed of. And yet we have to trust that this light of the world is really good and really does have power to bring to the darkness that we hide in. And it's not just for us. We long for this for the whole world. This isn't just a therapeutic gospel to make your life better. It's to bring you into the kingdom of the Son and to help us long for this light to dawn in the darkness, as it were, and to bring a multitude of people to discover this living light. There is much gloom and sorrow, even at this time of year. And so let us pray that this light of the world would bring light into our life and to those around us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, that despite deserving being stuck in that cave, you did come to rescue us. Give us eyes to see the goodness of the Lord Jesus, whose light shines across the world. Let him shine that light into every part of our life. Let us trust him with every part of our life, that by your spirit you might transform us with that goodness. And Father, use us that we too might be a light in this world, pointing to the Lord Jesus, that many more might discover your goodness and be transformed and brought into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And so we pray in his name. Amen.